Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back. My guest today is Kirkland Newman, an Anglo-American journalist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist who specializes in integrative mental health. Kirkland founded and runs the successful integrative mental health website, Mind Health 360, which provides free information and resources on integrative mental health and functional medicine psychiatry to those suffering from mental health issues, their friends, their families, and to health practitioners worldwide. She also founded and hosts the Mind Health 360 show, which interviews leading integrative mental health practitioners from around the world. On this episode, Kirkland and I will discuss what ADHD actually is, some of the myths surrounding ADHD, the most effective alternative treatments currently available, and what parents can do to steer away from the medication-centric narrative around ADHD. I'm so excited to welcome Kirkland Newman. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on your um, show, which is just so interesting. And I've been listening to a few of your podcasts, which are really great with uh, Gabor Mate and Bob Whitaker and really interesting. Um, so well done. Thank you. Thank you. And same to you. I've listened to some of your podcasts as well. Sounds like we're kind of eavesdropping into each other's <laughs> lives. <laughs> You know, and I'm just uh, I'm really happy and uh, that you're here and thanks for making time for for our podcast. Um, well, it's great. It's my passion. So always happy to make time. Great, great. Well, let's dive right in. So ADHD is really close to your own heart or home, I should say. How did you first uh, feel when you came? I'll call it in touch with this so-called disorder when it first showed up in your life. Well, the really interesting thing for me is that I have, I was recently diagnosed with adult ADHD, um, but you know, I'm 50 um, as of a few days ago. And happy birthday, happy birthday to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never realized in my 50 years, you know, um, that I had this quote unquote disorder. Um, I just thought that what I was coping with was completely normal. And when I looked at the symptoms of sort of adult ADHD, I thought, wow, you know, this is interesting because a lot of this coincides with what I feel like I'm always late and I need a deadline and I, I can hyper-focus. And, you know, ironically, I, I did very well academically. I've got three master's degrees, but it was always really hard for me because I had to have a deadline and then I would hyper-focus and I would usually work all night and, you know, for six hours straight and I would get everything done, but there was a lot of procrastination and a lot of um, sort of dysfunctional behavior around my study habits. And even now I have an inability to get things done unless I have a deadline and, and I tend to procrastinate a lot and I'm always late. And there are certain traits that I just thought were normal and I would beat myself up about them and think, you know, why are you so like this? And it's just, you know, awful. It says character deficiency. And so while the interesting thing is that while, you know, we dispute putting labels on things, for me, I actually found being diagnosed with ADHD was a relief because I thought, wow, you know, this actually makes sense. Like my whole life, I've been struggling with cer certain character traits. And, you know, my ex-husband was always saying, you're always late, you know, you're and so I'm always waiting for you. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's a bit of an excuse. It's like, oh, well, that explains it. But on the other hand, it was also a relief for me because I thought, OK, this does explain why I struggle with certain aspects of my behavior. And that's uh, interesting. Sorry to interrupt. But, um, uh, you know, there's this saying, right, when we say, well, uh, uh, getting a, di a, a, a diagnosis or a label, um, is not a bad thing. And I would agree, right? As an adult, we can reason with that. We can kind of put our lives under a microscope and go, oh, I see some of the patterns. But I think for kids at like five, six, seven years old, it's a bit harder to uh, to see that. And, and perhaps how it lands for them is a bit more like you're broken. There's something wrong with you. You're not right. 
And so I totally get that as an adult, it's, uh, it can be a relief, right? To sort of go like, oh, I see these, sims, these symptoms have, you know, the struggle have caused these symptoms. So I totally get that. Yeah, it's that's a great thing. And, and then what you say about the kids, because both my, well, my youngest, who's now 12, has been recently diagnosed with ADHD as well. And the eldest, who's 15, has been diagnosed with borderline ADHD. You know, and I'm not a big fan of labels. I mean, I work in sort of integrative mental health, and I look at all the aspects that impact your mental health, from your biochemistry to your psycho-spiritual to your lifestyle behavioral. Um, and so it was interesting getting these sort of labels for my sons. But again, with the little guy, the 12 year old, he's always struggled to read and he's a very bright kid. But, you know, he's all he's very bright, but he's never liked reading, you know, and I'm a big mm -hmm. reader. I studied literature at university and, um, you know, his father is a reader. And so it was very strange that he was so resistant to reading and he was really um, finding it frustrating at school and find, you know, and he was, he thought he was stupid and he was constantly putting himself down and lacking confidence because he was not academically as, you know, able or as advanced or, or there was a disparity between his intelligence level and his achievement level. And I think that was the interesting part because we had him assessed by an educational psychologist and they said, you know, he's a very bright kid, but he's not achieving academically at the level of his intelligence. So what's up with that? And, you know, they claimed that was because of his ADHD. So again, well, that's, that's interesting because it's almost like what's up with that is like, well, that's my son and he's just choosing not to read that well yet. Yes. Right. And you could you could say. Right. And yes, if you if you're in a system of a school that you need to graduate from and there's a certain thing and he can't cut that, then perhaps he's just not that's just not his jam. Right. That's exactly right. And it's interesting that you say that because I remember I was a late bloomer and I was really considered not that bright by my peers. You know, I was people would say, <laughs> oh, you know, you're so stupid. I was brought up in France. And whenever I asked a question in class, you know, kids would say, oh, you're so stupid. And I, you know, and, and I was convinced I was stupid. And then at the age of 16 and I was always very, very average in my results. And then at 16, I somehow completely shot ahead and did really well academically and I went to Oxford and got a first at Oxford, et cetera. But, you know, it took me a while to get going. And I think there's this theory with ADHD and, you know, whether you want to call it that or something else that your, your brain develops at a slightly different pace. So two to three years behind other children. Um, and your brain is slightly smaller or two to three years behind and it catches up, but it's just a timing thing. That's yeah. one of the theories. And so I agree with you a hundred percent, not yet. And so these things can change. And also the thing I noticed with my youngest is that if he's interested in the book, like if it's a thriller, then he'll read no problem. Like yeah, he's exactly he loves it. It's when it bores him. He's just like, I can't. Well, that's funny because, uh, you know, there's that, that I think uh, Russell Barkley uh, is the psychiatrist who who often says, OK, well, parents come to me and they say, well, you know, so you say he has attention deficit, but when he plays video games, he he's fully like super hyper focused. And he goes, well, yeah, but that's a video game. And so I'm here to say what 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 people what I think people are jumping over is the fact that you can't call it a, a attention deficit if there is a place they can actually focus. So then it's a selective thing, right? And yes, there's controversy around video games, but to me, that's proof that no, when they really want to and it's entertaining enough for them, they can hyper-focus. It's just that schools need to, I think, should borrow from video games to see how can we gamify or how can we make education interesting because we're still teaching like 100 years ago, which there was no distraction. I totally agree with you 100%. And, and, you know, whether it's because they're enjoying it or whether it's because they're shit scared, excuse my language, but in my case, yeah. that's why I needed a deadline. Because if I had to present at a tutorial the next day and I hadn't written an essay, I could hyper-focus. I could focus all night and I would work all night yeah. because I was scared. 
But, you know, my sons, both of them can hyper-focus with video games. And so whether it's because there has to be some motivator. So either it's fear or it's, you know, excitement and pleasure, which obviously is better. And then you have no problem hyper-focusing. So, right. but that is a characteristic, they say, of ADHD is this capacity to hyper-focus as well as being very inattentive. So it's this sort of weird combo. It is. And it's interesting because I've been, you know, tracking all the, the symptoms uh, of ADHD and, and, and usually there'll be like an insight that I have. I had one on empathy the other day where I'm not a very empathetic person. My wife is very empathetic. My son, who, who was diagnosed with ADHD, is also not very empathetic. And so I realized, you know, I was thinking, why is, is, is that? Because empathy seems like such a, a almost a, a spiritual thing or like, a you know, it's not a tangible in the brain kind of thing. I mean, it is, but it just didn't seem like that to me. And so what I got was that Recently, I, I discovered that I've been a very manipulative person in life. So uh, I, because of the fear as a child growing up, the fear of not getting my way or not having enough, I've become a manipulator of flow so that it would flow my way because I needed to know that I'm going to be fine, right? There's some traumatic experience of not being loved or feeling, feeling like I matter. And so I realized that fear has kept me selfish, and when you're selfish, you don't have empathy for other people because it's like me first. And my son has the same thing. And I realized that's not an ADHD trait. They say it is. It's a symptom, a lack of empathy. But that's not from the ADHD. That actually comes from a traumatic experience that then resulted in a fear of not having enough or life not going my way. And it was a big like, whoa, you know, it's a very fine nuance. Most people would be like, no, it's the ADHD. But that's made up like the label, the, the name. So where is it coming from, right? Well, and also you raise a really interesting point there because the whole fear factor I find fascinating in ADHD, which is the theory, you know, I was talking to Stephen Porges the other day on a podcast and he's the inventor of the polyvagal theory. And essentially his theory is that if you don't feel safe, if your nervous yeah. system does not feel safe, then it manifests as all sorts of mental health symptoms. So absolutely anxiety, lack of attention, poor memory, because essentially you go into a dissociative state, which is the freeze state. And, you know, especially as a child, you don't have the ability to fight or flee and therefore you freeze. And by freezing and dissociating, you know, there are all sorts of adaptive mechanisms that then kick in that can manifest as mental health symptoms. So whether yeah. it's a lack of empathy or lack of attention, it's all fear-based. And it's really interesting because, you know, if you talk to Stephen, he'll, his sort of utopian vision of society is one in which people are safe. Yeah. And schools, you know, in our society are very predicated on the basis of competition and, you know, you have to perform and same with, you know, hospitals, same with a lot of institutions, prisons. Yes you don't feel safe because they're noisy, the lighting's not good, they're very competitive. And so his vision of a sort of society in which everybody feels safe, which is much more adaptive and a much nicer, you know, vision of society in which we'd have probably a far fewer mental health issues and far more empathy for each that, other. That's amazing. You give me goosebumps because there's a whiteboard behind me and I was meeting with the team uh, on the documentary a few months, a month ago, and a new team member who's very, um, what's the word, challenging or likes to likes to be the devil's advocate. She was like, OK, so in one word, what is this film about? And I just trusted what came down and I put the word unsafe on the board. And it was it was just clear goosebumps again. It was just clear to me that our world is not safe to the more sensitive children that are being born. And more of them are being born because we've evolved as a species. We've even spiritually upgraded. And so when these souls come in, they're very sensitive to what's happening. And we've created a world that's like, it's just an attack on all your senses when you're born, right? We're totally overstimulated. And I think this is my fear about, you know, and I saw that article that you sent me earlier about the fact that, you know, the social media 
um, aspect is overblown and that essentially, you know, there's this theory that since Instagram and Snapchat in 2012, there's been a huge exponential increase in mental health problems amongst teens and depression, yep. anxiety, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, the, the article you sent me was sort of saying, well, you know, is that really the case? We don't find a correlation. And I'm not sure because I do feel that the overstimulation that's brought on by this technology, which we're constantly connected to and bombarded by, and there's no rest for our nervous system and for our children, yeah, you know, they're constantly being bombarded. And, you know, it's really important for the nervous system to have periods of rest without stimulation. And our societies are so overstimulating that I think for our nervous systems, it's kind of a disaster. Uh, absolutely, um, I agree. And I think the article was more like to show the, 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 the complete other belief system, right? And I believe just like you that, you know, meant, uh, uh, social media is kind of a magnifier of the issues or the, the threats or the unsafe kind of things that come at us. It certainly doesn't help. And, you know, when, when you're that stimulated all the time, it'd be like being in, at a Vegas casino 24 seven, you'd go crazy after a while. Completely. And we're not designed for that. And, you know, one of the most beautiful things, I was at a retreat with a guy called Dr. Alan Wallace, who is he was the translator for the Dalai Lama um, and mm. for 18 years and became a Buddhist monk. And he's um, he's he now writes books. He's written about 40 books on the intersection of spirituality and science. He's extraordinary. And he was saying, you know, in the last 100 years, we brought about more change. And, you know, whether it's medicine, uh, economics, um, you know, all our social systems have changed, you know, faster than in the last 3000 years. And we've lost the capacity to adapt physiologically to this change that we've surrounded ourselves by. And any time, as we all know, that a species fails to adapt to its new environment, we're kind of screwed, you know, we're in trouble. And I think that's probably what's happened. And that's why we have an epidemic now of mental health issues, of mm -hmm. health issues, of societal, uh, you know, breakdown and, you know, economic issues, because, you know, we are not equipped physiologically to adapt to this level of stimulation and the, the onslaught that we're faced with on a daily basis and, and the totally. Yeah. And, and sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, go for it. I mean, it's, I was just going to say in, in my work in mental health, I would say that 90% of mental health issues are driven by what I would call stress, you know, and yes, our societies are so incredibly stressful and, you know, as physiologically what's happened is that the, you know, stressors have increased in our society whilst our capacity to be resilient to stress is decreasing because of all the factors in our environment, poor nutrition, higher levels of toxicity, um, you know, greater infections, inflammation, et cetera. And we're less able to cope with it. And I, I totally agree. And here's, here's one of the issues that we're encountering is when you mentioned the word stress, we've sort of workified the word, meaning we, we, we related to working too much or being too busy, but stress on the nervous system is, like you said, is very many things like the environment and toxicity and even the media and, you know, a divorce and all these things that add stress to a fragile nervous system. I mean, if you think about a baby coming out of the womb, that nervous system, or even during pregnancy is so fragile. And the the slightest, I'm, I'm even, I think we talked about this, right? Where there's studies that um, ultrasound is starting to already stress the nervous system of, of, a, of a little one, right? In the womb. And so I don't think we have any idea yet. We say we're all about science and advance and blah, 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 but we're just not looking at the, the true impact of stress on a nervous system at, at a larger scale, like we are with uh, smoking or cancer, you know? Totally. And I mean, another one is, you know, EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, you know, from our cell phones. I mean, I, you know, when I was in my twenties, there were no cell phones yet. And now every kid has a cell phone. And so, yeah. you know, and they say studies are very, you know, contradictory about it. Some studies say they're not good for you. And some studies say, oh, it's fine. You know, so I know. in 20 years, we'll see what, what the outcome is, but it's, it's, you know, and as you said, I think there are, 
you know, psychological stressors such as trauma and difficult life circumstances. And then there are physiological stressors such as pollutants and toxins and infections, things like mold. And we don't always think of those stressors. You know, we think of the more psychological stressors, yep. but we don't think of the fact that even poor nutrition, high levels of sugar stressors to our physiology, which then reduce our capacity to be resilient to the psychological stressors. So it's a perfect storm. It's, yeah. And I think what I like about one of my favorite uh, 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 diagrams is this. Uh, our, our, our listeners obviously can't <laughs> see this, but on the Mind Health 360 website, you have a, 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 a diagram that says, that there's lifestyle behavioral, the outer life, and then there's the psycho-spiritual, the inner life, and then biochemical is the body in between. And I'll put a link uh, in the show notes so our listeners can check that out. But I love that because to me, what, what, what spoke to me was that my body is, is the in-between those things. And the stress can go both ways. It can go from my mind to my body and it can go from the outside the environment to my body meaning the nervous system right so most of your work essentially you could say is around that um this diagram right which is beautiful i think that's really yeah. well done i mean that for me was really important was i spent a long time trying to figure out how to make you know the link how to make you know sort of come up with a system that would explain mental health and you know at the moment the sort of gold standard of treatment in mainstream is ssris and cbt you know cognitive behavioral therapy and serotonin drugs drugs <laughs> reuptake inhibitors but yep. and so you know for me it was really important to come up with a model that incorporated all these different aspects and i felt you know you can't treat mental health sustainably unless you're treating these different aspects that that impact your mental health and you know one of them is the biochemistry so the hormones and the nutrition and the toxins and inflammation and infections things like lyme disease bartonella um, pollutants such as molds. I mean, these can create neuroinflammation, which can then manifest as very real psychological symptoms. Mm. And then obviously you have the psychological ones such as difficult life circumstances, trauma, stress, and then you have lifestyle behavioral. I mean, going to bed too late every night, not getting enough sleep, not getting enough sunlight, not getting enough exercise. These are all, you know, the, so it's really important to look at mental health from these three different angles and to you know, cover all those aspects and to, to look at what might be causing your depression or your anxiety or your insomnia or your poor memory or poor concentration and to address them all because otherwise it's just a band-aid, a quick fix, and it doesn't usually work. Yeah. So I'm really passionate about that. Um, and I'm actually refining that diagram a bit further because I'm always having ideas, but yes, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Now let's talk about a little bit. Do you see, can you for yourself and feel free to share in as much detail as you'd like um, or not, but do you see for yourself uh, in your childhood and then also for your children enough stressors that could have potentially put your or their nervous system on high alert that we then call ADHD because it's 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 trying to survive and it can't learn or develop while it's trying to survive. It can only do one thing at a time, right? Do you see that in your in yourself and your, in your children? Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and obviously I've done a lot of thinking and a lot of therapy around this as well. I've done about <laughs> twenty years of therapy. Um, and still going. But um, my mother, in fact, obviously, you know, your maternal um, relationship is one of the most important in your life. And my mother's mother was an alcoholic and she killed herself when my mother was just had just turned 15. Mm. And that was a sort of generational trauma, which was never really dealt with. And so my mother never saw a therapist. She never had any trauma work. But I think she had understandably some some real mental health sequelae from that um yeah. her nervous system was on high alert she was incredibly anxious i think she probably had some underlying depression so she coped and she but she didn't want to go there she was of a generation where you didn't go there you didn't explore these things and you didn't deal with them you sort of swept them under the carpet 
And I think what happened was that, you know, I coped as well. And then when I, and I started having panic attacks, actually, when I was about seven years old, I had my first panic attack. So I always mm. had anxiety. And I remember at school, I had quite a lot of anxiety around exams and it would manifest as gastric problems. You know, I'd have diarrhea and bloating and cramps, and I couldn't actually focus at all on my mm. exam because I was so scared of failing. And, um, you know, was, I have to say my childhood was full of a lot of anxiety and stress as a result of all that. And it's taken me years to sort of understand the nervous system and understand through therapy what I went through. But I got to the age of 31 with having no clue at all about what was wrong or mm -hmm or that anything was wrong. I mean, to me, this was sort of normal. I mean, I knew that panic attacks weren't great. And I knew that I, you know, didn't, I, my had problems with exams and I had to sort of take homeopathic remedies and, and really work on my nervous system if I wanted to do well at exams. But I, it was something I just learned to live with. And it was only in my thirties that I started to do therapy. And I thought, actually, this isn't normal. And um, my childhood wasn't particularly easy in, in quite a few ways, even though you know I was from a very loving family and on the outside, things were fine. But I think there was a lot of internal stuff going on. Mm. And still now, you know, at the age of 50, I'm still doing now somatic therapy to try and deal with that trauma. And I think the difficulty also is when your parents don't deal with it themselves, then there's a burden on you to doubly deal with it because you're dealing with not only your own stuff, but you're also dealing with their unresolved stuff. And I love in one of your, your podcasts, you mentioned the book that you're writing and and, you know, the fact, I, I can't remember what you call it, but there are three points in the second. Oh, one yeah. Is, is it's heal, uh, heal your shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, shift your perspective shit. and heal your shit and honor your child. Yeah. And I love that because that's my big message is heal your shit, because we all have a responsibility to heal our own shit not only for our own children, but for the people around us so that we can be better parents, better colleagues, better lovers, better friends, um, and better children and, you know, better citizens. And I really feel that we have a responsibility and I feel really strongly about this. Mm. And so I love what you said about that. And so what happened to me, and I think you pointed this out as well, is that often when you have children, or maybe it was Gabor Mate who said this, but when you have children, it triggers a lot of your unresolved stuff. And so, of course, I had postpartum depression after both my boys um, and that really was the first time I, I mean, I'd had panic attacks, but that really compounded everything. And I had sort of panic and anxiety disorder, insomnia, and was diagnosed with quite, quite bad postpartum depression, especially mm. the second more than the first. You know what he said? I, I, I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that because my wife and I talked about it, but he says that postpartum depression is due to the, um, I don't know if that's true, but I think that's his theory is that it's true to the, the father of the child not being emotionally available or supportive to the wife during that time. That's what he said. And I was like, well, it's sure true in my case, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I have heard that. I've read that. And it does ring true. I mean, my you know, I adore my my ex-husband, but he came, comes from a long line of macho men who um you know, don't, who believe yeah, in just like you're, you're on your own lady you're I mean, on your own, or, or throw money at the problem. In my yeah. case, get a maternity yeah. nurse, you know, and, and outsource, outsource the problem. And mm -hmm. so, which has plenty of massive repercussions. So yeah, that was definitely a contributor because um, yeah, that was a real doesn't, problem. And not to blame him. It's also not a hundred percent proven, but it, it sure doesn't help. Let's put it, it that way help at all. And I think, you know, it's a really key relationship and, and, you know, and he had his own trauma. I mean, you know, his mother left when he was two and, and he yeah. was brought up by a dad who was quite, you know, quite old fashioned and, and quite macho. And so, you know, there, you can see how all these intergenerational things. Yeah. It's have, all connected. It's, it's all you know. connected. <laughs> and so, you know, my poor boys, you ask about my kids. I mean, my goodness, my, my eldest, I, my mom had a heart attack when I was six weeks pregnant and nearly died. And obviously wow. in utero, that was hugely stressful. And then she had another heart attack when my son was three months old and she happened to be in London 
uh, staying with mm. me. And uh, that was very stressful. And then there were just a series of very stressful events. And then of course, you know, I got separated four years ago. That was very traumatic for the kids. And so the poor kids, you know, they've had, plus I had postpartum depression and, you know, there were periods where I was very incapacitated. I mean, I was having so much anxiety. It was very hard for me to be, be properly looking after my kids. And part of the yeah. problem is that, you know, the mother's nervous system is so essential to her yeah. children nervous system. And, you know, I read all these books on parenting and I thought, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I've got to take them to museums. And, but actually what I realize now is I didn't have to do anything. I just had to be different. Yes. yes. I had to be grounded and calm and within myself and settled in my nervous system. And so I look back thinking I tried so bloody hard to be the perfect mother, but actually you know, I failed in the sense that I was just a basket case. I was super anxious about everything. And, and now, you know, my sons are anxious and they both have sort of attention issues. And I, you know, it's hard not to blame yourself and say, well, if I'd known more, I mean, I did 20 years of therapy and I've read all the books on parenting. So why couldn't I get it right? But essentially now I realize that it's really all about your nervous system because your children attune to your nervous system or entrain. There's this beautiful word called entrainment, which is, mm. you know, that you're mirror, you're you're mirroring, you know, your yeah. kids mirroring your nervous system. It's like the you're in the same frequency, like a walkie-talkie. You're kind of like dancing. Exactly, and so it's so essential. Not what we do, but what we be. You know, and I love that. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's I, what I'm getting tired of is when people say, yeah, but, you know, being a parent is stressful and da, da, da. Well, yes, if we're going to continue doing it the way that we're modeling in this society, it is. But I don't think it has to be stressful because I'm going through a parenting course right now uh, at the Jai Institute, which is conscious parenting. And I'm learning that it's it's the kid can scream and do whatever. And if you regulate your way of being and respond from that there's no stress here and you're not adding any stress over there. They're just experiencing emotion. That's not stress. That's just an emotion. Completely. And we've had, we have the two collapsed, right? Emotional outburst and stress. And so I think if we can untangle that and work like you're doing, doing the work first here, healing your shit, that's going to heal theirs while you're also helping them heal theirs. And that's just, that's just called life. We're just going through life healing and re recreating ourselves nothing wrong with that a hundred percent and the other thing i would say also is that you know i i think for me being able to deal with my children's emotion was was very difficult because it upset me so much and i would i would find it really hard to cope with their emotion and i would try and fix it and you know at all costs because i couldn't cope with it and now what i realize is actually just being able to hold them as they're having these emotions and just being present in a loving, calm way is all you need to do. Because they're, as you say, it's just emotion. They're just having these emotions. And as the lovely Marie Forleo says, you got to feel it to heal it. Yep. And I love that expression because, you know, you got to let your kids feel it, but, but not be overwhelmed by it. And so you have to hold them. And that's, particularly skill, you know, you have to have that skill. And if you can't hold your own emotions, then you're not going to be able to hold your kids' emotions. And hence why it's so important to work on being able to hold yourself emotionally so that you can hold your children mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. let them have their emotions as, you know, you let yourself have your emotions and, and not freaking out because you're having these emotions or because your kids are having these emotions. Well, I think what doesn't help is that we're living in a society where, you know, IQ is valued more than EQ. And we, we think, uh, well, if I get really good at my emotional intelligence, that's not going to pay my bills. Well, I think it will, because if the being shifts and there's less stress and less mental disorder and running around with chickens, like their heads cut off, we're going to attract more peace and love. And ultimately we want to be happy. We don't want to have a lot of money and be unhappy. I mean, everybody with a lot of money thinks they're going to be happy, but that's not the case, right? It's not the reason why you'd be happy. So I think it's, we just have it backwards and still praise the IQ. 
You know? Oh, totally. And I think, yeah, no, there's no doubt. And also, you know, your brain works better when you're calmer, you know, you make better decisions. I mean, your prefrontal cortex when it's online can be great, but when you're, when you're being regulated by your limbic system and by your amygdala and by your fear center, you know, your prefrontal cortex is going to be offline and you're just not going to make very good decisions. And so, you know, I think there's so much to be said for for being calm and being uh, your nervous system being settled so that your brain can work better. Mm-hmm. No, that's beautiful. I, lo- I would love to uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Porges sounds sounds amazing. I'd love to uh, at some point interview him. It sounds like right up my alley with the nervous system. Oh my God. He's he's the master. He's the master of it. I mean, he's uh, sort of the godfather of the nervous system. So I will check out that uh, your, your episode on that. I saw that I haven't listened to it yet, but um, perhaps if, uh, why don't we talk about what you've seen? So you've done a lot of work. You have a lot of resources on your website. And again, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll post that in the show notes for our listeners, Mind Health 360, and also the show. Um, you've, you've seen a lot, you've interviewed a lot of experts. What would you say currently from what you have heard or what you have experienced, what are the most effective alternative um, practices, methods, uh, strategies that, that parents are using or adults uh, for ADHD? So it's a really good question. I did a I did a podcast with Dr. Greenblatt, James Greenblatt, who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist um, in the states in Massachusetts, and um, I thought thought he was brilliant. And he's written a great book called Finally Focused, and which is sort of natural approaches to ADHD. And I have to say, I mean, before our podcast, I was rereading my notes on that, and you know, he's got some really fantastic simple approaches, which I'd love to uh, take you through a little bit. So, so one of them, for instance, is that, you know, I think it's, uh, I'm looking for the statistics here, but 75, um, so it's no, nine out of 10 kids diagnosed with ADHD have a magnesium deficiency. And so one of the things that he advocates, for instance, is, you know, magnesium for kids with ADHD, sort of 200 milligrams a day. Um, And he said magnesium deficiency essentially affects 90 percent of people with ADHD. The other thing he advocates is something called OPCs, which are oligomeric um, proanthocyanidins, which are the powerful plant pigments, which are like the blue and blueberries and the green and green tea and polyphenols, essentially. And they're very antioxidant and they balance brain waves. And essentially, you know, ADHD is sometimes a dysregulation of brainwave activity. And these compounds can help balance brain waves and restore attention. They also regulate uh, levels of norepinephrine and epinephrine and um, dopamine as well, which are very, uh, you know, which, as we know, there's a theory. And I was very interested to hear your podcast all about the sort of anti-chemical theory of mental health issues and ADHD, which I would agree with generally. But I do think that the collection of symptoms around ADHD and depression, et cetera, can have biological correlates. So, yeah, which which I think most people would agree with. And so these OPCs also limit the production of glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter that's toxic in large quantities. He also advocates something called low-dose nutritional lithium. So lithium we know is the drug in bipolar, um, which is given in quite high doses, but he uses very low doses of nutritional lithium, which is lithium orotate um, in Mm -hmm. sort of one milligram, two milligrams. And I've actually tried that with myself and with my kids, and it really does seem to make a difference um, in terms of restoring attention. Yeah, I've heard about that. Um, I interviewed Dr. John Gray, uh, you know, Mars, women are from Venus, men are from Mars. And he's now he's super into nutrition. And he said he's healed his own. um, I want to say, was it Alzheimer's? No. um, Dementia. Yeah. And his ADHD, all with nutrition. And he mentions as well the glutamate and lithium and magnesium and 
So there's definitely a correlation there with uh, with these supplements. I, I do believe that. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, I mean, maybe I should have started talking about nutrition in general. Obviously, I think, you know, limiting processed foods and limiting sugars because sugar is very inflammatory to the brain and very excitatory to to the brain. And so things like, you know, eating whole foods, a diet of whole foods with very high fats, good fats and high protein and very low sugars and low carbs. That's just a must. And then when I talk about all these supplements, um, these are, you know, what you call sort of green medicine, which is still in some sense, it's still sort of a pill for an ill, but they're natural pills um, Mm -hmm. to sort of compensate for any sort of potential chemical imbalances. Another thing that he talks about is correcting the copper zinc imbalances. So they found that kids with ADHD tend to have high levels of copper uh, and low levels of zinc. And zinc is incredibly important for um, brain neuroplasticity. So um, sort of for BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, zinc plays a really important part in that. And often kids have you know high copper, low zinc, and it's really important to supplement zinc. He talks mm-hmm. about iron deficiency and ADHD. He talks about HPHPA, which is a byproduct of intestinal bacteria metabolism, um, which comes from a bacteria called Clostridia difficile. And they found that kids with Clostridia difficile, which then produces this metabolite, there's a very high correlation with ADHD. So looking at the gut and looking at whether they have this bad bacteria and then helping correct that can be very effective. He also talks about gluten and dairy intolerances because, you know, a lot of kids, for instance, my son has a gluten and dairy intolerance um, and the gliadorphin from the gluten and the casomorphine from the dairy um, can have a really negative impact on, on attention and focus and cause inflammation. He talks about candida, and if you have an excess of fungus in the gut, that can actually overwhelm the immune system and and the brain, and it can affect attention. Um, He talks about vitamin D in terms of boosting serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And then one of the key ones is omega-3 fatty acids because they strengthen the outer layer of the brain cells um, and they help neurons make serotonin. They help keep dopamine receptors in good shape. They lower, lo- they lower inflammation. And these are all really important for the brain. Um, having cholesterol, for instance, that's too low is also bad. We always hear about you know having high cholesterol as being so bad, but actually having very low cholesterol is a problem in serotonin Mm -hmm. associated low cholesterol with um, sort of suicidality and, and also uh, aggressive behavior. Um, A lot of, a lot of things to watch out for. And I think these are great, uh, great uh, tips as well. And I think one of the things that always comes up for me is like, you know, any of these things, like we want to be doing them, right? Because I, I believe even a person without, that's not diagnosed with ADHD, those are going to be beneficial. And of course, because someone diagnosed with ADHD and they've had stress and trauma in their lives, so they're on high alert. So especially they will benefit because they're so sensitive and they're so right. So I always intuitively, I feel that these things are all like, yes, let's, let's take care of the nutrition. Let's take care of all of that. But at the cause of it all really isn't a disorder. That's just what we call the symptoms that the cause of it all really is the nervous system stressed out at some point in life and it goes into survival mode. And so I always like to slice that, you know, what is it called? The the split the atom because a lot of people go, well, no, that's because he has ADHD. Well, no, the ADHD is a description of the symptoms, but the cause, the because is something else. And these things, nutrition or going to, to, to bed, on time and not watching too much, you know, playing video games and all these things. Absolutely. Those are what I call inflammatory. If you don't pay attention to those, your ADHD goes through the roof, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I mean, it is, it is interesting, this whole thing of disorder. I mean, I would a hundred percent agree with you. Dr. Greenblatt will say that there is a, you know, 75% is a genetic component. And I know you would probably disagree with that. 
Um, but it's, it is interesting because essentially like these sort of lifestyle behavioral issues to support whatever damage has been caused by the stress. And, you know, what yeah. happens is when you do have stress and trauma, then there's a downstream biochemical effect, which means that you, it causes inflammation and it causes a reduction yep. of neurotransmitters. And, you know, we know that stress reduces dopamine receptors and serotonin receptors. Yep. And therefore there is an actual, you know, we say, okay, well, the chemical theory of depression is bullshit. Yes and no, because there is uh, an issue with neurotransmitters and there are fewer yeah. receptors and yeah. there's, and it's, you know, but it's not one, it's just a combination. And what's it caused by? It's probably caused by stress and inflammation. Yeah, that's what, uh, yeah. what we're saying is, and Bob Whitaker would back this up too, is like, it's not that um, there isn't a neurochemical imbalance in the brain at the time when you would measure it. It's just not caused by ADHD. It's the stress, it's the, right? The stress and the trauma, whatever you want to call it, causes it. And so we're taking a snapshot at that moment and it's off balance. Exactly. And so the medication helps to perhaps balance that. But again, it's not taking care of the, the symptom or the actual, right? And, and also recently we've gotten across uh, studies that show that uh, uh, the, the same, the same, um, neurochemical balancing that's done with drugs actually does the same in people with no ADHD. So it's not an ADHD medication. It's just a yeah. medication that does that, right? It, it's well, I mean, it's like taking recreational drugs, you know, I mean, not that I've done that, but if you take speed, you feel great. I mean, you know, your brain's really focused and working and it's quite funny. A friend of mine the other day went to get diagnosed. She got diagnosed for ADHD and then she said, oh my God, it's amazing. Like this doctor gave me this slow release pill and I'm now, you know, like my life has completely changed, you know, but yeah, yeah I mean, that probably of but it, you know, it does help. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I used to take a, a Ritalin or, or an Adderall when I needed to do taxes while I was working on this project, I was testing them and I took them and of course it feels great, yeah. but I felt the dependency that yeah. I could see a kid eventually, not just psychologically thinking, I do need this thing because if not, I don't get good grades and my brain's broken. And so I got to keep doing it. And then what's next, what's next. And it's, it's like, that is a true dependency, even if it's not a physically, it's not like meth, you know, where you must have it, but it's a psychological dependency. It's psychological uh, dependency. And I think, you know, and that's what I like about the supplement approach is that it is somewhat a dependency, but you're actually restoring the brain's neurochemistry. So you're actually giving it the precursors to build the right neurotransmitters, to build the right hormones and to build the right neurons and neural connections. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. So to me, that's really important. And nutrition, you know, all your neurotransmitters come from proteins, amino acids. So you've got to have the right amino acids in your diet. You've got to have the right Bs. B6 is the precursor to, you know, serotonin and is involved in dopamine and, and your hormones, which, you know, all these things are so delicately balanced and yeah. our lifestyle yeah. and what we put in our mouth and our supplements, all this is super important to support our brain chemistry and our mental health and our attention and our focus. And I do, it's interesting because, you know, I have, um, Dr. Greenblatt does say that kids with ADHD have lower neurotransmitters across the board. And I did some tests on my son, some nutritional tests, and he has an inability to process proteins and amino acids and as well as other, you know, as well as the norm. And therefore, he's going to be more deficient in certain neurotransmitters. And so it's really important to, to supplement those. Totally, totally. Uh, but what I agree. With yeah, no. I, and look, I, we're still exploring this, too. Like, I'm just realizing that. All of these things that that we mentioned, right? Nutrition, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, CBT or therapies, or you know, if you've heard anything out there that's that's new, or you know, there's there's now some machines and some uh, there's biofeedback. There's there's uh, lots of things out there, and I think they all help, you know. And I think I always tell parents do whatever you can, whatever feels right that you that you can do before you give medication, exactly. but also again, the heal your shit means 
that's included. You got to do all of that work if you really want to get to the root cause. If not, it's just a coping and it's band-aids for life. And that's fine if one chooses coping over thriving. That's a choice. That's okay. Not making them wrong for it, but we're saying there is a way uh, we feel you can thrive as a family if you just you do your nutrition, you do your therapies, but you also work on the, the, the childhood trauma. You work on reducing stress in the family, right? All of that, it's, it, that's the holistic part, really, that we, we agree on. Totally. And, you know, that's why I call it Mind Health 360, because I just think you have to look at the whole picture. And, you know, unfortunately, it takes more work. It takes more money. It takes more time and effort. And I think, you know, whether it's patients or doctors, there's a sort of reticence because it is more of a long term thing and it's more of a commitment and it takes daily effort. But at the same time, you know, it's worth it because if you get your yeah. mental then why wouldn't you do that? And I was doing a podcast with the suicide survivor, Kevin Hines, who's the most amazing guy. And he said, you know, it's not that I don't have a desire to throw myself, you know, to, to kill myself anymore. It's that I, I fight that, but he said, it's a daily battle every single day. I have to do what I have to do in order to survive knowing that I'll have these feelings. And I think, you know, there is an element of it's a daily discipline, you know, the mindfulness and the exercise and the nutrition and the healing your trauma it takes work, but it's worth it. Well, absolutely. And I think if we can go, uh, we want to go spiritual for a moment is that I feel when uh, uh, I, we call it the check engine light, you've probably heard that in some of the podcasts that the child in the family is like a check engine light that's pointing out that there is friction. There isn't harmony in the environment and, and the child can't thrive. So I say when that child shows up in my life, my son with ADHD, he actually gave me the opportunity to heal my shit. And through healing my shit, I'm actually creating a much more fulfilled life for myself and for the family. So um, if we ignore that and if we just say it's a disorder and I'm just going to give medication because I got to go keep going to the job I hate and being in the divorce I'm stuck in and not do any of that work. Well, that's not going to be a fulfilling life. You know, that's that's not seeing the opportunity that that check engine light presents and says, yo, hello, stop, stop. And I think that's the tragedy of the current medical model is that it's very focused on symptom relief. And and it's just, you know, let's put a Band-Aid on this and let's look at let's, you know, put a Band-Aid on it so that we can keep going, you know, and let's treat a few symptoms, but let's not look at the root cause. And that's my beef with mainstream medical practice at the moment in mental health, because I just don't think that's uh, really even an ethical way to proceed. And you were talking about different therapies on the radar. I mean, I know yeah. that new feedback has incredibly good results with ADHD, as good, if not better, um, as well, certainly than medication. And the other thing I would say that, you know, CBT at the moment is sort of the gold standard of therapy because there's a lot of research behind it. But in my experience, um, one of the best therapies for the nervous system uh, or the best therapies for the nervous system, and to me, those are the most important therapies, are somatic therapies. Mm. And so whether they're EMDR or whether they're somatic experiencing, which is Peter Levine's work, or whether, um, you know, there, there are lots of different somatic uh, therapies that work with the body, with the nervous system, and that are less cognitive. And they're gaining ground and they're gaining popularity. But to me, those are actually the most effective. And personally, I've done 20 years of CBT and various different types of therapy. I have had the best results with a combination of somatic therapy and what's called IFS, which is internal family systems, which is Dick Schwartz. And it's where you work with the different parts of yourself, because we all have these different parts. We have, you know, the angry part and the part that's been the victim and the aggressor. And, you know, and it's harmonizing all these different parts in the context of somatic experiencing as well. So working with the body and recognizing where you're storing these parts in your cellular memory, where you're storing your trauma. And it's incredibly powerful and effective. And, Mm -hmm. 
if I had one wish, it would be that, you know, there was more access and more acceptance of these types of therapy, because I think they're by far the most effective. Yeah. And I think that's, that's again, the Western medical model, right? I I was sharing with my friend, I've had a a shoulder uh, pain for a year and just unexplainably started. And it was very painful. And I got to a point where I was like doing everything I could. And I was like, I may have to get surgery. I don't know. I'm 51 now. Maybe there's now is the time where stuff is breaking. Right. And I realized after my wife and I had, uh, after I'd shared with her and cleaned up some of my past uh, activities in our marriage uh, five weeks ago, this is down to 2%. I mean, it's almost gone. And I am convinced that that's what it was. Like I was just shoulder, I was storing that emotional, that shame or guilt or the hiding or all of that was in there. And, and, I believe in that now because I've experienced something so radical, but, but our Western model, nobody I saw ever said, except when I got to my acupuncturist, uh, two months ago, he said, what, what's on your shoulder? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you need to let go of? And I was like, oh, okay. No one said that for a year before any specialist, nobody ever mentioned anything. No, but I mean, you know, it's because we divorce the brain from the body in such a consistent way. And it's because, you know, the 18th century Descartes, you know, the age of enlightenment and the fact that we're so cognitively focused and we've lost track of the body. And that's what I love about, you know, people like Basil van der Kolk and and Gabor Mate, because essentially, and Stephen Porges, because essentially, you know, it's all about what you store in the body and you cannot divorce the mind and the body. And uh, you know, you do so at your peril. And I think our the way we treat mental health has to be so much more embodied. And, you know, whether it's looking at the biochemical imbalances or whether it's looking at sort of the trauma that you store in some place in your body, both right. are absolutely crucial to healing the brain and mental health. Yeah, it's amazing how, like, you know, for example, I just want to... Uh, I wrote down the myths, right? So you mentioned genetic earlier, Dr. Greenblatt. It'd be really great to talk to him because I just interviewed Bruce Lipton, um, the the biologist, and he uh, clearly says that's that's a myth. That's a scientific myth. It's never genetic. Um, It can be predisposed, meaning if you're, well, first of all, there's no ADHD gene, so it can't be genetic. Now, what's genetic is really just a narrative that gets passed down from family, like your grandmother to your mother to, but he talks about epigenetics where you can turn on and off your genes. So even if it looks like you might be in a family that has ADHD, you can be the one to say, I'm I'm taking care of this, I'm healing it and it's done, right? And he's a big proponent to that because he said when, when parents hear it's genetic, what it does, it it sort of... It, it gets them to be off the hook. It's like, oh, oh, I guess there's nothing I can do. Yeah, bad genes, you know? Yeah. I The other person you should talk to is Emma Beswick. She runs a, a thing called Life Code GX and they do genetic testing. And mm. I agree, I mean, look, there's no gene for ADHD or depression or any of these things. However, yeah. I am a big proponent of the fact that there are certain genetic variants that can predispose you to um, biochemical imbalances. So for instance, the MTHFR gene, which is a variant on one of your, um, genetics, uh, one of the, well, on the MTFR, uh, HR gene, I don't know about this. It's very obvious, but, (laughs) but what happens is that that can predispose you to lower serotonin and lower dopamine because that's a genetic variant. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Same with the COMPT gene, which affects your cortisol metabolism. And so, you know, depending on your particular and and you can also have genes that uh, lower that that predispose you to lower vitamin D, which then predisposes Mm -hmm. you to lower serotonin or lower dopamine. So the thing about genetics is it's super complicated, but, you know, you have these genes on these genes. You have these different genetic SNPs. Um, and those can, in combination or even separately, predispose you to certain neurochemical imbalances. Right, right. And so I do think that there is some validity to that. Um, Absolutely. I think the predisposes the word, right? What parents hear, though, is predetermined. And that's what yeah. Bruce says is never the case. Nothing's yeah. predetermined because we have the power 
to recreate our realities and are literally manifest a different, like, or uh, create a different manifestation. So yes, predisposed for sure. Um, it's just that when, when we hear in the media, it's genetic, it's just not quite the full narrative, right? It's not the full narrative. And it's really important also to, to really emphasize the fact that epigenetics is so important and what you do to switch on or off, you know, and, and that's what I like though about this genetic approach is that if you know that you have a predisposition like I do to low B6 or low folate, um, because of the MTHFR SNP, then you take more folate, you know, or you yep. take B6. So you compensate. I know I have the, the gene, the genetic SNP that predisposes me to lower vitamin D. So I supplement more with vitamin D. Yep. And I think, you know, the more information you have about that, the more you're in control of influencing your genetic expression through lifestyle, behavioral, uh, nutritional approaches. And that can be, that can really work to your advantage. Absolutely. I think that's well said. And I, I feel like that is a hard thing to do, right? When you're say single, single mother, single parent in low income, you have yes. two kids, both on ADHD, they're not thinking of getting their DNA sampled, right? Uh, is there anything that, what, what, can, what can people do? Uh, is there anything they can do at a, a, a more affordable level or, or, or generally where would you start just to get into it? You know, I love that question. And one of the things I'm planning to do on my website is a whole section for people who are on low income and who can't afford all this, because one of the other challenges about functional medicine is that it is expensive and it's expensive to buy the supplements and do the test. But there are a few very simple things that are free and that are really important. And those are the things that I'm going to put in a, in a sort of document for people. But, you know, for your nervous system, taking walks in the forest taking Epsom salt baths, meditating, um, you know, sort of walking in nature, listening to soothing music, these anything that calms your nervous system is going to be really good for your mental health. So that's the yeah. first thing. The second thing is, you know, ideally cutting out processed foods as much as possible. And I know it's a hassle. And when you're like working and you're exhausted, but going out and buying some broccoli and some rice or quinoa, I mean, you know, even rice and beans, I mean, these are not expensive things, but they're so much healthier than processed foods and eating sugar and, and you know, prepared meals, which, you know, or, or junk food, which is often cheaper, sadly, than whole foods but just focusing on whole foods and, and, you know, you can do that on a budget really successfully. Um, and, you know, reducing your sugar intake, reducing uh, any sort of processed refined carbohydrates is super important. Good fats, things like nuts and seeds and olive oil. I mean, these aren't hugely expensive, but they're really nourishing for your brain. Um, you know, avocados, um, uh, taking uh, sort of the key supplements I would recommend are fish oil, um, which, you know, can be slightly more expensive, but I think it's a really important supplement um, and magnesium, which is very cheap. Magnesium citrate is not expensive. Um, sort of a B complex. Again, you can get these quite cheaply and they're really worth it. So I think those three things, really managing your nervous system is through meditation, walks in nature, Epsom salt baths, eating whole foods, not processed, um, no sugar if possible, and taking a few key supplements such as magnesium, a B complex, zinc, and omega-3. Those are the four I would recommend. Uh, that's already going to really help. And I'd say another thing is cut out gluten and dairy if you can, um, because there is that risk that the sort of gluten and dairy intolerance, which is more and more prevalent, can exacerbate attention issues and neuroinflammation. So these are really simple, inexpensive things to do, and they will really make a big difference. And I will add to that. Yes, thank you. And I, and I think you know, what came up for me was like, you know, nowadays you go to the store, everything has either sugar, gluten, dairy, or all three. I mean, it's just like, it's everywhere. And I feel like when we uh, go through the process of starting to narrow it down to the healthier choices, some, some transformation of the self will, will appear. 
there's going to be some kind of uh, having to let go of our own addiction to caffeine or, you know, bread or pasta, pizza. It's almost like the, 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 what is it called? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? The parents get to look at their own diet and their own well-being and, so it's just, it's all related. And I think once we, we throw the hat over the fence and we say, I'm going to get my son or daughter healthier so that those symptoms disappear or get reduced, we're going on a journey. It's a, it's a personal self-transformation journey. And I'm here to say at the end of that tunnel is a lot of light, can only be a lot of light. I totally agree with you. And it'll make it, you know, it makes a huge difference. And I mean, there's nothing worse than than being in a sort of cooped up situation with sort of agitated people who can't concentrate or, you know, it's very difficult and it's stressful for everybody. And I think, you know, the other thing I would add also is getting enough sleep is essential. You know, if you, if you can get eight hours of sleep and, and limiting screen time if possible as well. I mean, these are all things that are free. They're not easy, <laughs> um, you know, but they're, they're worth it. And as you say, there's huge light at the end of the tunnel because, you know, the shifts happen quite quickly. You can really see a difference. I see a difference when I practice what I preach and myself and my kids, it's night and day difference when I don't, you know, it's very obvious, but it yeah. takes effort. It's not always easy, but it's worth it. Effort is the word here. Effort. Well, <laughs> I, I hate that to be the key word, but yes. You know, uh, I mean, we teach that to our kids at schools that if you don't work hard, you're not going to be successful. But then I feel like we, we sort of disregard that concept when it comes to our own well-being or mental health. You know, it's not yeah. easy. Yeah. It's not easy. And it's, I, I a hundred percent agree with you. And, you know, and, but just when you were saying that word effort, like that's my approach, it's like, it's a daily discipline, it's a daily work and it takes work. But then I was listening to somebody the other day who was talking about the importance of fun and play. In fact, it was Felice Gersh, who's a OBGYN and one of the, the podcasts I was doing with her and she's fantastic. And she said, you know, play and fun is so important for yeah. your hormonal balance and for your nervous system and your mental health. And I think we often forget that. And our idea of play or fun is, you know, video games. And that's, you know, I don't know what the right form of play is, but something that just gets you out of your head into your body and that, that just releases oxytocin and makes you feel good. You know, oxytocin is an incredibly important hormone. It's the sort yeah. of love and bonding hormone. So good relationships and, and play and, and having fun and, and a bit of levity is also super important. I love it. Well, Kirkland, it's been, it's been a pleasure. We've had a really amazing conversation. I think we've pretty much storm through all our notes <laughs> and my talking points in a, in a, in a very effective way. So I just want to thank you for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and I'm going to put all the show notes at the bottom. So parents know where to reach you. They can go to your website. Uh, they can reach out to a, a team member and perhaps if there's question or um, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with in regards to mind health 360 Anything you'd like to share? No, I mean, I just hope it's a very useful resource for people. It's a free resource to try and raise awareness around integrative mental health and functional medicine psychiatry. I have a database of clinicians um, worldwide. So if you're looking for a clinician, then there's that database. Feel free to use it. And, you know, I just hope it helps people. And also, Roman, just wanted to say thank you for all the work that you do. I think it's fantastic. I love your podcast. I love the film that you're doing. I can't wait to see your book. And I love the fact that you're always in perpetual motion for self improvement. <laughs> and I, you thank know, you. you're you're one of one of the tribe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do have a tribe. I call it the uh, I call it Camp Thriving because the other one is Camp Hoping or Coping. And um, I. Love uh, I love that dichotomy between thriving and coping that you've established. And so here's the thriving. <laughs> here's the thriving. Well, thank you again. And, and I wish you an, an amazing uh, rest of the week. Thank you so much, Roman. You take care. 